All right, man. I had a little bit of time off. I went to Idaho. So Nicole and I went to Idaho and we're avid hikers and we like to adventure out. And I'm telling you what a spot. So we started out in Ketchum. We did a bunch of hiking over there. Nicole did pretty much her first time mountain biking uh, in Ketchum, and it worked out well because I've always wanted to get her into mountain biking, so that was fun. And then we traveled from Ketchum, Idaho to Stanley, and Stanley had 69 full-time residents. 69 full-time. That's it. It was a small, cool, intimate little town um, great people, great places to eat, super nice hikes, um, hot springs. So we visited this hot spring, which was right off the, um, the roadway. And you wouldn't even know it was there if you didn't know it was there. And uh, so we hit that a couple times. And then from Stanley, we took about like a three and a half hour tour up to McCall. And McCall was a nice little city uh, on the lake. So it was fun. It was 10 days. We had a blast, saw a lot of animals, wildlife, got up into the mountains, into the Alpine lakes. And man, I tell you, we just had a ball. And the West is calling us every time we go there. It calls us a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Um, We just love it. Love it. So I would highly suggest heading out there um, and checking it out. So Ketchum, Stanley, and then up into McCall, Idaho. So we stayed pretty much in the southern part. Um, There's so much more to explore over on the east side uh, and then up into the north. So we're definitely going to hit that again. So we've already started planning our trips over to um, the Idaho, uh, Wyoming area, Montana. We want to do that little area for a trip. But then you get into grizzly country, and that's kind of what's been holding us back of traveling to those areas. But uh, no longer. We are prepared, and we're going to hit it. So it'll be fun. Um Today's guest that I have is Derek Dutton. So Derek grew up knowing that he is going to go into the military. And uh, what branch, he didn't know. So as he went through, he ended up choosing the Army. And um, he had an injury early on uh, from a parachute jump. Uh, The parachute malfunctioned, and he kind of hit the ground. Um, And uh, it didn't kill him. Um, but it, it messed him up a little bit. And so that was kind of the way that he started his career, um, in the military. He did do two tours in Iraq and eventually he was, uh, put on a medical, um, retirement or discharge and it, it affected him, you know, greatly. And we talked about it in the very beginning before we even went on air, because I kind of knew, um, his story a little bit. And the hard thing is when you go into those careers that, um, when retirement chooses you and you don't choose it and, uh, being on the fire department for many years, I've seen that happen to a few guys and they ended up having to be retired, um, due to injuries or illnesses. And, you know, when you don't choose to end your career, 
uh, it's hard. And it was always hard for those guys because a lot of times that's all they knew. And that was their identity. And his identity was a soldier. Um, the other guys, their identity was being a fireman. And then you, you get out of there and now you're stuck to what are you going to do? And listening to his story and listening to the support that um, the men and women have after leaving the military, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to their struggles and what they go through um, after the military, um, it's kind of eye-opening. And, you know, we should really look to these men and women and understand their stories um, and why they're in certain positions that they're in. And, you know, he, what he turned to was a lot of the extreme sports and marathon and swimming. Uh, he's a writer and a blogger. And that's kind of what he turned to. Is this struggle over? No. I mean, he's, he's still doing it, but he's waking up and he's getting things done day after day. And, you know, not every story is a super high uplifting rah-rah story, but, you know, I finally found his area that, you know, he was so excited about, and and he did an event here in Charlotte, and I think that is one of his most proud moments, and it was awesome listening to him talk about that, and I know that you guys are going to enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy his story, so sit back, listen. This is my man, Derek Dutton. Rob Young, Beyond Grit. So today I'm sitting down with Derek Dutton. Derek, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. good. So I read a description of you and it was from Spotter Up and it was it was pretty good. So it said that you're an avid adventurer, a writer, endurance athlete, firearms instructor, and a bearded hooligan. Does that about sum it up? That sums it up. The beard's a little thin now, but, but uh, still there. Still there. I know. I knocked mine down, too. I couldn't do it anymore. So what are you up to nowadays? That's a good question. That's a mm-hmm. good question. Kind of uh, kind of in a limbo state. Been doing a lot of writing lately. Um, been trying to uh, get a couple books knocked out is what I've really been occupying most of my time with um but other than that just kind of uh going through some adverse health issues that kind of popped up out of nowhere well not out of nowhere yeah but uh so that's that's dealing with that yeah that that kind of has hit me pretty hard so we're still trying to figure out what's going on there um but really just focusing on my writing right now so are you writing for, do you write for different organizations or are you, you said you're trying to get a couple books out? Yep. So I, I have, so basically freelance, I guess would be the umbrella under there. Um, I have worked with different organizations, different online publications, things like that. Um, I've slowed things down quite a bit. Like I said, I've, the health stuff has slowed me down um, pretty badly. Um, and so 
I've kind of stepped away from all of that and just focusing on my own projects right now. Mm-hmm. Um, have a couple books in the works there. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, doing a lot more poetry. Poetry is kind of where a warrior poet kind of theme there. Oh yeah. The idea, but yeah. So when it's good though, it, is it an avenue for you? It is to... sure. uh, kind of an outlet there. You know, I've always, always leaned towards poetry, even, even in my youth, but you know, obviously as you go through life and actually see some stuff, then, then things become a little bit more real, mm-hmm. a little more authentic and valid. So um, it's really been a great outlet for me and, and really just um, to express that creativity you know, through prose and um, poetry is such a dynamic environment. That's what I really like about it because you can kind of do what you want with it. Um, not quite as strict and rigid. So that creativity there, you know, is always good to have a outlet for all that. And that's what poetry kind of does for me. What, uh, what got you into the poetry? Is it something uh, that you always liked or... It was kind of, there's a little bit of irony in there. I was never a great student and I had an English teacher that uh, required a poetry section or something in in their English class. And I wrote this just out of defiance. I'm pretty sure Uh wrote this poem about being invisible uh, I wish I I wish I had a copy of it somewhere, uh, and I don't, and it kind of haunts me. But um, I wrote this poet poem on on being invisible and how I just wanted to drift through life and not really have anybody know who I was. And that was basically, you know, this poem in a nutshell. And I submitted it to the teacher, and he liked it so much. He, without my knowledge he submitted it into a poetry contest in Northeastern Montana and it eventually got published in whatever publication that they were, um, the poetry contest was. Uh-huh. For. And so the whole theme of this thing was for me to not ever be heard of. Yeah. And the very first thing it does is it gets me attention. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I, evidently you guys didn't read the poem, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I think that's kind of what started it. And then, um, again, it, it was more or less a survival tactic. I was, I was in Florida this time around for English. Um, I graduated from Florida, raised in Northeastern Montana, but, um, finished high school in Florida. And, uh, I had another English teacher that I was again, terrible student. I'm a terrible student. Um, and I wasn't doing very well in that class. And she, she too had a poetry section. And so, um, she had some silly project that was like, you had to pick two poets and, um, pick three or four poems from each and then kind of compare and contrast, you know, the different writing styles and stuff like that. And I, so then I seeing the opportunity there, cause I had a very poor grade in that class at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked her, I said, well, what if, what if I use my, can I use myself as one of the poets? And she was like, uh, Sure. And so I did, I, I compared, this is going to sound um, pretty outrageous, but um, I used Alfred Lord Tennyson, like, like I was as great as he was or something, but um, pretty shameful there, but uh, I did it. And um, 
anyway, I wrote several poems just for that, for that class and that, um, uh, that project in particular. And at the very bottom of it, you know, her critique was, you know, when you have your first book signing, I'll be the first one in line or something like that. And that was kind of a de definitive moment for me in, in my writing, because I always kind of got a little bit of attention for being able to tell stories and, and things like that. But that was probably the biggest boost, I think, and got me to make that pivot or transition to say, hey, you might have something there. Maybe you should look into that. Um, and that kind of got me really motivated and, and excited. And that's what really turned me was, I think that was my senior year in high school. But uh, so then I weird how things find you. It is. It is. Especially when you ignore them for so long. Yeah. <laughs> they just keep beating on your door. Yeah. <clears throat> so what brought you to Florida? So where are you now? Are you back uh, in Montana? These are good questions, man. Long answers. But uh, so I'm in Wyoming right now. Okay. Um, I graduated high school in Florida. My, my father was a pilot and uh, since retired. But so he kind of was all over the place growing up. Um, he was, at, you know, had his own business up until the late nineties and then kind of got out of that and started working for other people. And that kind of moved us around quite a bit. And he ended up in Florida for several years. Um, and then back in Montana and then down in Texas and Louisiana, flying offshore to the rigs, um, flying crews out to the oil rigs and stuff. And then, um, anyway, bounced around all over the place. And then we landed back in Florida again, uh, my sophomore year, high school i think and uh, no junior i'm sorry junior and senior years are in florida but uh so then i graduated from there and that's where i actually enlisted you know when i was 17 or whatever and and uh went from there yeah so was the military something you've always wanted to do yeah that that was you're like hey i'm gonna graduate and this is what i'm doing I didn't know if I was going to graduate, but I definitely, definitely, um, <laughs> the only ambition I've ever really had was, you know, I knew I, it wasn't a matter of if I was going to join, it was, you know, what branch was I going to serve in? Uh -huh. um, never a question as, as far back as I can remember. Um, so yeah, it was just a matter of which recruiter could win me over, I suppose. Yeah. But, and it was the army. I guess. I mean, you know, you put a 13 year swimming career and the special operations community together and you don't usually come out with an army ranger, but yeah. Anyway, that's kind of, that's kind of how that went about. So yeah, I always say the, the Marine recruiter, he was a douchebag, the Navy recruiter, he was just as bad. And then just by dumb luck, I think the army was the last one and he wasn't, he at least, uh, you know, had enough charm to convince me to check it out. So yeah. I think that's, that is not how you need to enlist, by the way. Um, <laughs> young kids out there, don't, don't let <laughs> your life be dictated by a recruiter. That is, that is not, that is not sound or sage advice. Isn't that funny how we think when we're that oh. old? Cause we know oh. every damn thing there is to know. Everything. Every, everything. Yeah. God, I was so smart back then. Yep. Yeah. Hey, yeah. 
you figure it out one way or the other. So you went into the army and uh, you, how old were you? You were 17. What year was that? I actually enlisted. Uh, yeah, I was 17, September 20th, 2002. It was a year after um, 9-11. Uh, so that was obviously I knew I was going in and then obviously once 9-11 hit, it's like, okay, how soon can I go? <laughs> like, yeah. School's yeah. a waste of time. We, we got things brewing here. Let's, let's get this moving. So, um, so yeah, that's when I enlisted and had to enlist in the delayed entry program and do all that okay. yeah, option 40 contract for, you know, ranger selection and all that. But, uh, so anyway, how was the ranger training? Uh, it was, it was something else. Um, I enjoyed it, I guess, as much as one can, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and again, my, my enlistment was, you know, just a flash in the pan really. Um, cause I got injured so early. <laughs> yeah. But uh, how long were you in before you, you got injured? So before I got it, I mean, I was brand new. The original incident, uh, original injury was a parachute malfunction um, in 2004. And so you're talking, I mean, I just made it through basic training, airborne school and ranger indoctrination program, got stationed at my, at third ranger battalion and uh, sitting in my permanent duty station. And it was our first first fixed wing event where we conduct, you know, airborne operations and things like that. And that was one. So I was the brand new guy. So my, my enlistment did not start off the greatest, but, uh, but then I was in another two years after that. Okay. Uh, what happened? I had a parachute malfunction and, uh, um, and so I kind of had a little bit of a rough landing there, but luckily my head broke my fall. That's, that's the, it's my time to fame. And did it just not open or did it? Uh, so it, this is a long story too. Um, I had an extremely weak exit out of the aircraft for a couple of reasons. One, um, my equipment was wider than the door was, and I got hung up as I went to exit the aircraft. And so instead of jumping up and out of the aircraft, like you're supposed to do, I basically, whether you want to say I fell out or was sucked out <laughs> either uh -huh. way it was not a strong exit and um because of that extremely weak exit uh one of two things happened i either impacted a pack tray from the guy in front of me or i actually impacted the aircraft either way it hurt really bad because it felt like a major log major league baseball player hit me in the face um with a baseball bat as hard as he could it that was the most stunning um thing i remember right off the bat was was just that pain in my face if you've ever been hit in the nose yeah uh, just imagine a, a c-17 hitting you in the face at 150 miles an hour it's not fun and so that caused me to go into a really violent spin and i never really recovered from it after that because my parachute tried to deploy because we're just static line jumping which means you know my it's my kind of hooked yeah it's attached to me okay basically deploys by itself. Um, but I had twists that went all the way from the base of my neck all the way up to what seemed like the very top of my parachute. I mean, I've never seen anything like it personally. Um, 
but anyway, so without my parachute being able to open, um, which what I could see was about the size of a basketball is in my mind. Now, obviously I'm sure it was much larger than that, but that's immediately what my mind thought of. Oh, and shit. Uh, it was very small. Yeah. Not, not large enough to, to sustain life in my opinion. <laughs> and so I tried to correct, you know, some of the twists that were just endless. And obviously that didn't do me any good. And, uh, parachute tried to open it, it effective, uh, essentially failed at some point. And then I just had essentially shoot drag until I landed on the nice, soft, cushy runway. So, um, again, luckily my head broke my fall and, uh, you'll see that that becomes a theme later in life that a parachutes are for pussies and B, uh, I'm a little bit fall proof and I have a magnet for head trauma for some reason, but, uh, <laughs> Oh my God. So did you, all right. Did you jump again after that? I did. I was actually, I, uh, after being unconscious there for a hot minute uh -huh. on, the, on the runway, I was actually able to regain consciousness and was actually woken up by a living legend, um, Sergeant Major Merritt. And even in the post concussive state that I was in, um, this is in the middle of the night and I'm on the side of the runway and there's a figure and he's known as the battle troll. He's a short squatty little man um with the voice of a lion but uh even as new as i was i knew who this man was and even coming out of this you know being unconscious all he said was you've been there a long time ranger and i knew instantly who this guy was and i i realized that that is not a good position to be in as a new guy yeah not be confronted by a sergeant major as to hey what you doing taking a nap on the side of the runway and so he put the fear of God in me and I, I don't really know what happened immediately after that, other than I packed my parachute and I hobbled my broke ass to the objective or the rally point first, which I was very late to, by the way, um, that also didn't bode well for me, but anyway, um, so, but they didn't know what happened, did they? Uh, so allegedly I only, I only found one witness that claims to have seen me. And so the short answer is no, I had riser burn all the way across my neck. So riser burn is all think of like a rug burn. Um, but it was so aggressive that it actually cut my throat. And so as I was falling, I could actually feel this warm sensation coming down my neck. And, and that was the most eerie feeling of the night was that I, I knew without seeing it or, or anything, I, I knew that my neck was bleeding. So that was fairly um, discomforting, I guess. Um, and so that was the only physical sign that really anything had happened. Um, cause again, I, I took a little nap and then woke yeah. up and hobbled my way. My knees were in excruciating pain and well, everything from head to toe, but I was able to carry on and, you know, do what I needed to do in a terrible, terrible way. I got, actually got in trouble that night for being a banana sandwich, but, um, so that was, that was a good time, but yeah, we, uh, I ended up having to jump right after that. So, um, again, it's one of those things that at the time I didn't know that you could, you know, hurt your head. I didn't, I mean, even, even in the medical community, traumatic brain injuries were relatively unheard of. 
Um, and it, there's a whole story behind that, but, um, but yeah, so, um, nobody really understood anything that happened immediately. And so, yeah, I had to jump again. That sucked. I, I was that you talk about, um, overcoming things that you may or may not want to. <laughs> right. I talk about getting back on the horse after you've been oh, uh, knocked off. That was, Oh my God. That was unpleasant. But, uh, <laughs> but I had, they wanted to make me jump again after that. And I was throwing kind of a big fit about it. And, uh, I no joke had an officer tell me, well, you've already had one parachute malfunction. So, you know, what are the odds that, that it's going to happen again? That was their justification to make me jump. And I was just like, well, I guess you can't argue with that logic, but I'm, I've let the record show. I'm still, this is still making me uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, man. Unreal. So then you went, you know, off to that and, um, you went, uh, you went to Iraq too twice yep. didn't you twice yeah so then back and through multiple injuries you ended up uh being retired out correct yeah and that was you know and this is some of those things and we talked about this before is um you know when retirement chooses you and um and you you didn't choose this and um it chose you and now you're leaving there to go back into society. And, uh, and that was really, that was a big struggle for you, wasn't it? Yep, absolutely. That was fundamentally the, the biggest challenge that I had and, and honestly still struggle with. Um, it's a little bit more dynamic these, these days, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was, when you think you're a young worker snapper and you know everything and you know what your life's going to be and you know the direction it's going to go and that's that you know what i mean you have your mind set up and then and then you get a curveball and and something gets taken away from you you don't really know what to do and nobody equips you for that either um that was the struggle that i had is sure there's lots of guys that medically retired around the same time i did and there's lots of guys that had you know ptsd and things like that um but not all of them, you know, were forced out. And so that was a huge chip on my shoulder and really definitive in, in what I've done since then. Um, just cause I do, I I'll admit it. I, I do have that huge chip on my shoulder that I did not want to leave. That was the only occupation, um, that I really had any ambition to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so having that taken away was, was, was definitely a struggle and a half for me. Yeah. And the whole thing of the PTSD um, didn't really come to light until the, the Iraq war and, and going from there and moving forward. It was one of those things that was, I don't know if it just wasn't recognized or people just didn't want to talk about it, you know, and um you got a big thing of asking for help so i mean coming out of that how did you find your your way again because you lost it for a while i did yeah um so i i guess my term for this is forced humility <laughs> hmm. um 
basically being humble to the point where you realize that you cannot, you don't have the answer. You, you can't, whether it's because you're sick, whether it's because you're injured, doesn't matter what the cause is. You, you come to this realization that, that you cannot by yourself fix the problem at hand and, and, and you're going to, you're going to need some help. And so to avoid a lot of pain and anxiety and frustration and failure, if you can learn to reach out sooner rather than later, um, I, I believe just with my own experience that you're, you're going to be more successful in your transition and coping with, with some of that trauma. Um, can some guys deal with it on their own? Sure. But why, why should you? Um, I was always bitter and angry because I knew there was people that were struggling. Like I was, why was I by myself? Why, you know, um, and, and there was, there was a huge lag in terms of resources for, for veterans back in the early two thousands. Um, especially when you talk about traumatic brain injury, um, especially connected with, uh, PTSD. And so the resources just weren't there. And so it, for me, it was a long, painful, um, long, painful transition to, to try and, and come around there. And really it was just a forced humility when I finally got to the point where, you know, I, I, I simply cannot do this as, as bad as I want to think I am, you know, we just can't, do everything by ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, Where'd you find the help? Was it through the VA? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, good times. Um, <laughs> I did, I did seek VA treatment immediately after my retirement. Um, and there were some resources available to me. Um, however, my experience within the VA system is, is not one of positivity. Um, and, and they probably won't be endorsing me at any, anytime soon, because I, I really honestly don't have anything kind to say, um, because I've basically lived every nightmare horror story that you've heard, um, from the VA. And, and my early story was, you know, they, they weren't interested in fixing me. They weren't in, interested in helping me. They, all they wanted to do is medicate me and put me in a corner. Mm. Um, and that's what they did. And I listened to them for years. And then it was uh, 2009 when I had a um, one of those forced humility moments and uh, realized that, you know, they really weren't um, looking after my best interests and and in terms of my health. And so I jettisoned all of my VA care for years. Um, just because I got sick of them trying to kill me. Cause at, at that point it, it had felt like, um, you know, they had more attempts on my life than um, Muslim extremists had at that point. So that's kind of giving you a little context for that decision to walk away from their mm -hmm. healthcare. Yeah. Um, Where'd you but, go to? What was your. Another, these are great questions. Um, I was lost for a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I, I was kind of lost in the sauce. Um, I decided, you know, I was the only one responsible for my transition. Um, the VA or, or anyone else at that time wasn't going to help me. And so I had to, I had to look for resources. I had to look for um, 
different ways I could, you know, um, help myself grow personally and spiritually and emotionally and all that. And so <laughs> my mind's a little bit unorthodox, but I actually went to Bible college. Um, I've been a hugely spiritual man. Most of my life grew up in a conservative Christian home. And, and I, I was going to a church at the time that nobody was really giving me any answers. And I'm like, Hey guys, I'm struggling. Like there should be some type of, you know, take, take the combat stuff out of it. Like there should be some type of mentor program or discipleship program, you know, I mean, for Christianity's sake. Right. And there was just nothing there and, and nobody could really give me any answers. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll just go find the answers myself. And, and so that's kind of twofold was one to find answers to my own spiritual questions. And two, um, I was using it as my, uh, rehabilitation of, so to speak. Um, because what I actually went to school for was I originally started as a behavioral science major, obviously trying to understand the brain and, mm -hmm. Um, a huge trigger for that was, you know, the traumatic brain injury that I sustained. And, and cause during all of that, you know, I did learn a little bit, there was a VA program I did take part of that. They had a TBI program. Um, and that helped me understand a little bit of, you know, what happened in terms of what kind of damage and, and how that affects, you know, your performance and, and cognitive function and things like that. And so that was really intriguing to me. And so that was the idea was I'd, I'd go to, you know, study behavioral science and, and, and do things like that. But once I got in, I kind of realized there was a better um, program out there for me. And that was uh, actually uh, Bible theology. I switched my degree to Bible theology and pastoral care, which really kind of gave me um, a good mix of everything that I was looking for. There was tons of theology um, and uh, tons of psychology um, for counseling, obviously as a pastor. And things like that. And really the, the, the greatest uh, asset in terms of my rehabilitation through um, the Christian university was um, they had a program where you would actually work as a chaplain. And so I was a volunteer chaplain at OU Medical Center and also Midwest City there in Oklahoma City. And that by far pushed me the furthest. Um, with all the, all the stuff that I was going through. Um, and it, it was actually pretty incredible to, to make some of those breakthroughs that I really didn't anticipate. And again, super humbling. Um, but that's, that was kind of my, my track, I guess that's, yeah. that's how. I, and then I also got involved heavily within wounded warrior project mm -hmm. early on. Um, I was a wounded warrior project peer mentor for a while um and different organizations they're in you know just trying to be active you know within the community and um because again you know most of those years i was kind of a banana sandwich myself so um i wasn't a, terribly useful but you know as time went on you know i was a um, certified peer mentor and i was also a um Stephen Minister, which was actually an incredible process to go through, which is just a layperson um, ministry, so to speak, that kind of equips you. Um, it, it's more along the lines of, you know, kind of like a peer mentor type thing where you can, uh, people that go through trauma and things like that, you can, mm -hmm. you can really 
but it's in a really intense program. But are you uh, still working within the church? I'm not. So right uh-huh. now being where I am is also interesting. Um, cause I actually live in kind of a Mormon stronghold. Okay. Um, so ministries aren't really all that Christian ministries really aren't that uh, popular. Up here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm kind of without a church at the moment, but uh, okay. All right. How long have you been in Wyoming? I've been here. Well, let's see. It'll be, uh, I think I'm going on five years. Um, wow. yeah, 2016, October, 2016. So, um, is when I moved up here. Do you like it? I, well, yes and no. Um, I, I've been affectionately calling it my beautiful prison as of lately. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you cannot beat the, the terrain and yeah, you know, the, the national parks that I have at my fingertips, um, national forest and all that, um, recreationally, you can't beat it. And that was largely why I came up here was because I thought it would really enhance my, um, ultra marathoning capabilities. Um, and what I really did was I just alienated the crap out of myself. So kind of backfired on me there, but, um, because I actually live in a, what I I've also named or coined a pool desert because I have to commute about 120 miles to the closest pool. Um, and so that's been pretty heartbreaking for me just because I'm a swimmer by trade. So, um, that's really where my heart is, but, uh, triathlons too was one of your outlets yep Yep. and now are you doing um are you doing the ultra marathons now is that your thing or what are you what are you doing now i was kind of doing everything there for a minute right now i'm taking a sabbatical like i said because of my health i yeah i've lost about 95 percent of my physical ability um and hence why i look you know, like a marshmallow right now, but, um, that's been terribly frustrating. Um, because it's one thing to get, get the wind knocked out of you. It's, it's something else to, for the universe to keep, you know, curb stomping you when you're down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've lost a lot over the last couple of years. Um, and it's really been, it's actually, honestly, it's kind of eclipsed all, all the trauma and all the things I've experienced have really been eclipsed by the last two years <laughs> oh geez so yeah uh, so you so you're writing more i'm writing more now yeah yeah that's about the only thing i can do these days um, uh, i wish i was writing more uh in terms of uh, my blog ranger smash but um obviously if i can't train and compete there's there's not a whole lot of not a whole lot going on there so yeah. that's pretty quiet but they're there's some good stories on there as well. Um, but um, trying to focus on writing, just sticking with the positive stuff that you can do, right? We can't control everything, but what we can control, you know, we need to focus on. So, yeah, that's one of your biggest things with the Ranger smash is, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to mess it up, but it's um, that nobody fights their fight alone. Yeah. Nothing is worth doing alone. Yep. Yep. And, um, are you, are you struggling right now with feeling that you're kind of alone? Do you have people that you can reach out to? I do. Um, 
believe it or not, I don't have a whole lot of friends, but the friends that I do have um, are incredible and they're, and they're amazing individuals. Um, and it's, you want to talk about the law of attraction, you should um, put some positive energy into uh, just being around badass people. And, and that's kind of what I've been able to attract in my lifetime. So a lot of my friends aren't nearby. I am isolated physically, um, but I do have a large network of um, whether they're ranger buddies or or just um, general badasses that I've encountered over my lifetime that um, tend to reach out and keep tabs on me and yeah and so I do have a good good friend network there and um, and so isolated yes but I do have you know a support system that's yeah vitally important you know to my sustainability. What got you involved in? Um the um it was with olin and you guys did the honor swim so the honor swim was um was done here on lake norman in the charlotte area and they swam the length of lake norman and it was in honor of sean clark and fred thornton um which were um charlotte police officers that lost their life right what um and and what they did it for was to raise money for their kids and how did you get involved in that so that was that was probably one of my most notable accomplishments in life i i suppose um i honestly didn't meet olin through any other avenue other than we were in the same um this private facebook group um that was just a bunch of prior service army rangers called Sua Sponte elite race team. And it was just a bunch of like-minded guys that, um, you know, we, a lot of us were out some, some are still in, but uh, most of them I would say are, are on the backside of things. And so we're just kind of trying to relive our glory days through, you know, extreme endurance and, and uh, specifically triathlon. And that, that's honestly what really got me, pushed into competing in triathlons and I was such a noob. I, I had no idea about anything triathlon related. I, I knew I always wanted to do one as a kid just because I was a swimmer and I thought I would like cycling. And, and of course I didn't really start running until I was an adult, but, um, but that's really what pushed me that direction was Sua Sponte Elite race, race team. And that's where I met Olin and, and he posted in there. He just posted about, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And as soon as I read it, as soon as I read it, I was like, I don't know who this guy is, but whatever he's doing, I want to be a part of. Cause I mean, it was that inspirational. Just, I don't even remember what Blurby put out. He just said, this is what I'm doing. What do you guys think? And I think I sent him a message almost immediately. Um, just saying, Hey, I know I'm, you know, 1500 miles away to the West, but whatever you need, man, I, I I'm, I'm there. I support you. What you're doing is awesome. Um, I was actually a, a reserve police officer at the time. So I felt like I kind of like fit in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so I just was really inspired by, by what he was trying to do and trying to accomplish. And I mean, this was a couple of years in the making too. So um, I reached out early, early on and, and I was just like, dude, use me if you can. And honestly, he probably just dismissed me. He's like, whatever, dude, like, 
you're not even remotely in the region. Like it is what it is. Um, but you know, we stayed in touch and of course we, you know, we had, um, Suespate elite race team that we were pretty much communicating on a constant basis or competing or whatever. And so as things, you know, progressed and, um, you know, he reached out and was like, Hey, send me a, send me a snippet of your, your background or whatever. So I can share it with the rest of the team. Cause you know, he's got some badasses on there, you know, his, yeah. his swap buddies and, and I'm like, all right, that's a little intimidating. You know what I mean? I, I hadn't re- really been doing a whole lot. Um, I was trying to like make a footprint in endurance and stuff like that, but you know, I haven't really accomplished anything, uh, noteworthy. And so, uh, you know, I said, I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm a big time swimmer. Uh, this is, this is what I've done. I actually, um, had quite a few water rescues at, at that point in my life. Cause I, I cheated while I was in the army and I actually got to, uh, I would be one of the lifeguards for, um, the combat water survival test, which is a, a prerequisite to either go through the ranger indoctrination program, which is what we used to call, or what we called RIP, which is now called RASP. So to even go to the selection program, you had to do a combat water survival test. And same thing if you wanted to go to ranger school, both have this prerequisite. So anytime there was a ranger school class or a ranger indoctrination program class, they would usually pull me in to be the lifeguard under you. And let me tell you, guys that want to become rangers are some non-swimming <laughs> mother lovers. I swear to God, it, it was, uh, that was probably one of the most shocking things when I got to Ranger Regiment and I realized you guys can't swim for shit. Yeah. Like it was embarrassing. Like sometimes we would go to the pool for PT and it was just like a bunch of gorillas just beating each other up in the water. I, I couldn't believe it. But anyway, what did you have to do? Like, what was the water thing? Did you have to stay in the water for a certain amount of time? What was? Well, so I was an arrogant prick. So I didn't learn this until I got more into my civilian life and uh, started pursuing um, some of my lifeguarding stuff that I did there. I was an aquatics manager in Colorado for a while. And uh, so I didn't really realize how arrogant I was at the time, but I, I refused to use any type of flotation. So, you know, when you see a lifeguard, they've got the big noodle. Yep. It says lifeguard on it. I'd never use those for any of like my 250 um, water rescues and assists that I had up until that point. And uh, which didn't mean much to me back then, but looking back, it's like, man, you're an idiot. Um, Cause you're talking about full grown men that are, you know, not lightweights. And anyway, so yeah, I would either be in the water or uh, most of the time I was in the water just cause everybody knew I was, you know, all about it. And of course I would never have flotation and I would really just, I would kind of focus on, uh, there's a swimming portion where you have to swim in BDUs and boots and you have to swim so far to demonstrate whether you're a, uh, strong swimmer, weak swimmer or a no go. Right. And so I felt it was my duty to try and help these guys. So I would not assist because what, once they reach out to me and they make contact with me and I, I pull them out of the water, then you know, they're a no go. So, so I, it was, I felt like it was my responsibility to give them every opportunity to save themselves. So again, kind of a dick move, but, uh, it, it really familiarized me with, you know, this, um, universal language that is fear and, um, 
most human beings don't want to drown. So the, the sheer panic and please help me that people speak with their eyes is one of the most haunting things ever. Um, but anyway, I would blatantly disregard these, these Eiffel screams and let these dudes just go under a few times until they were like going under, under, Down. under. <laughs> and then I, you know, then I would perform an assist or a rescue um, based on the need. But uh, so, yeah, I was there, you know, and we run, you know, hundreds of guys through that combat water survival test at a time. So, you know, you do two or three of those and you have literally hundreds of, I, I just ballpark it with, you know, 250 or whatever, but I mean, who knows how many. I'd have been one of them. I'm like a but, damn rock. <laughs> My wife's yeah. like, you're the worst. I said, I don't know. I don't understand why. Some people uh, don't float, you know, they have that negative buoyancy. No, I'm, I can, really I can sit here and I could talk to you and I'll be like, watch this and bam down to the bottom. I don't float. I don't know why. Well, well, uh, I haven't figured that out either. I, I do know it does affect different people. I've, I've not been one of them. I, yeah, no, I, I, I blame it on, you know, being a fat athlete. That's kind of, I've always been more kind on of the, fit, kind of fat. It's all right. Yeah. A little, oh, uh, what I had one guy, um, uh, deceivingly fast is, has been my motto, I okay. guess. I had at the end of a, it was an aquathlon. So it was like a poor man's triathlon where you just have a swim and a run and there's no cycling. And, uh, he got out of the water. Of course I was, you know, second person out of the water and, uh, he's like, well, I'll catch him on the run. And obviously he did not. And so at the end of the race, he was like, wow, you're deceivingly fast, which I thought was, you know, pretty big insult. It was like, well, you could just call me fat, but but instead it was deceivingly fast. So then I just kind of embraced that. And, you know, I've always, you know, even in childhood, you know, uh, I had my first state title when I was, uh, 10 or 11. And, uh, I was a fat kid. I have pictures. Like I could show you a picture right now that there's four kids in this picture. And one of them is a state champion and you would never guess which one it was. Cause I, I was the little fat pudgy round one. Um, but again, you know, fat floats, they say it's an advantage. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Maybe it's technique, yeah. but, but it's, <laughs> it's always aided me, I, I think. But uh, all right, um, back to the honor swim. We went, we went down a couple back alleys. Now we're going to roll back to happened. Main Street. So on the honor swim, so you met up with him and he, he kind of reached out to you. And yeah. So he reached back out to me and was like, hey, send, send me a little bit about you. So I did. And he's like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. And it wasn't very long after that, that he's like, yeah, we want you to be a part of this. And so then I became um, their dedicated rescue swimmer is, was my official title, um, which I was really excited about. Like, like I said, I mean, I have a full write-up on this on my blog about the honor swim and, and really just talking about what he did for those families. Um, but I was, I was ecstatic. I was like, I don't, care what happens in the next few months, but I'm going to be there and I'm going to help. Even if I'm just a spectator, I don't care. I just want to be, I want to have a hand in this because I just thought it was the most awesome thing I'd, I'd seen up to date. Um, and so, yeah, graciously, he, he let me into his, his little group. And I honestly, I, all the way up until the day of the event, I didn't actually physically meet these people. I, I met no one. Owen and I spoke via email and through or Facebook, basically. And uh, so all of these people, 
were really strangers to me, you know, just going into this thing. And so it was really, I mean, it's, it's pretty typical in my life. I guess I do crazy stuff like that all the time, but um, it, it's kind of, it was kind of odd traveling across the country for something, you know, in a world where we're all kind of self-consumed with, with our own stuff and our own problems. And, and I, I can't imagine the doubt that Olin had when, when I said I was going to be there and, you know, yeah, I'll try, I'll bring my family of six, you know, 12 yeah. or 15 miles East um, to the Carolinas and, and help you out with this. And I'm, I'm sure he's just like, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, so we did, and I, I showed up and, and, you know, as they say, you know, the rest is history. Um, and it, it was just a phenomenal event. I, I couldn't, I was just happy to, to be there. Um, I ended up playing a, a larger role than I anticipated because we had one swimmer that, um, because of nausea and fatigue and stuff like that, some cramping issues, um, decided he, he wasn't going to swim anymore or couldn't swim any longer. And so I was like, Hey guys, I'd actually been training for my own, uh, marathon swim, which was, uh, 36 miles up the red river in, in North Dakota. And I was like, Hey, I've been training to swim like 30 some odd miles. If you guys need help, I'm like, in. I'm okay with that. And obviously, you know, they're like, Oh heck yeah. And so again, graciously, they let me be more involved than I probably should have been. And, and it, it seriously was, um, you talk about grit. I mean, that, that night was just incredible. The weather sounded nasty. Oh, gnarly. Nasty. I, I, in in my write-up on my blog i'm telling you I, I i said it was a suck fest of ranger proportions i mean it seriously not even just for the swimmers not for the guys on i mean everybody that was involved it it just sucked like it was just the way it was cold rainy um and i was an idiot because you know i was fairly gung-ho about everything and so i was in a pair of ranger panties and a poncho and uh I was pretty hypothermic by, by the time midnight came around. And I honestly, when I told them that I wanted to swim, it was, I'd been feeling the water, the, the surface temperature of the water was really warm. It felt like bath water compared to the, the ambient air temperature. And so it was really more of a selfish move. I was like, I need to get in this water cause I'm freaking freezing to death. And uh, so anyway, they finally let me in. Um, now the water temperature, once you go, you know, more than six inches deep was quite yeah. a bit cooler than I anticipated, but, um, but it was still, still pretty awesome to, to get to be a part of that and, um, something I really enjoyed. And, and, you know, as a marathon swimmer, there's this little, doesn't matter if you can see or not see when human beings are not designed it is not natural for us to be in the water. Like I, of that, I am convinced um, just with my experience now with like swift water and things like that. Um, it is just not our, not our house. We, we are just guests. Um, and so once you put yourself into those situations, especially in the dark or in murky water, like your brain just starts messing with you. Um, and I used to really revel in that, you know, with my marathon swims, because it's fairly harmless. You know, usually I've been in, you know, pretty calm waters where there's no real um, danger, so to speak. Um, but, you know, the night of the honor swim, 
if you would have told me that there was there were whales in that lake, I would believe you because I saw them. Like, I, I, no joke. I swear to God, I saw something the size of a bus swim underneath me. And it, and maybe it was the lightning in the background that just illuminated the water in a certain way. I don't know. But I swear to you that I saw a whale swim underneath me. Um, <laughs> the Lake Norman whale? Oh, man, there's something in there, something big. I don't know what it was, but it sure looked like a whale. But uh, no, it, it was just really incredible. And, and, re- and the other side of that, too, is um, it was so even amidst the storm, I, I don't know, it's like a Forrest Gump moment, right? You know, when Lieutenant Dan's up in the, up, you know, cursing at the storm and um, it's, there's a bit of surrealness and calm within the storm when you just kind of accept it for what it is. Um, and as you sw- as we were swimming, I, I can't speak for the other guys, but while I was swimming, um, every time you submerge yourself, you know, in between breaths and stuff like that, there's just this calm and quiet that you feel so freaking tiny. Um, but you just have to keep going, right? There's nobody's going to propel you, but yourself. And, and so you just kind of got to dig deep and, and, and keep moving forward. And, and so you do without, despite the fear, you know, despite the fact that there's a whale down there um, (laughs) or whatever else monsters about to come up and grab me. Right. Um, it's just that vulnerability, that radical acceptance of, of your vulnerability, vulnerability as a human being, right? Because we all like to think we're badasses and tough or not. Yeah. We're not. Um, you know, um, we're all fragile, <laughs> but uh, so I, I think a lot of it is just that radical acceptance of, you know, that vulnerability and, and just moving past it and and gritting your teeth and going forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's going to do it for you. It's like you said in the water, I mean, you could stop drown. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody's going to keep you afloat except for yourself. Yeah. Especially because I was a rescue swimmer. Right. So there really, I was, I was the guy. So you were the guy. I I remember, uh, all I freaked Olin out because, um, one of the legs I swam, we had like these little LEDs. We had an LED on our goggle strap and we had an LED, flashing led on our ankle and so you know pretty solid idea so that we could you know because i didn't think it was going to storm like it did i mean you're you're talking white caps i mean those waves were massive i mean i i thought i was swimming in the ocean for a minute and uh i mean it was just a gnarly storm and so those leds were really crucial in terms of you know maintaining contact with the swimmers and uh well, being the guy that I am, sometimes I get bored, you know, doing one thing for too long. So, you know, I was one of the legs I was swimming, I got bored and I just flipped over on my, on my back and I actually swam underneath the water for a while, okay. just kind of dolphin kicking on my back, just cause I was, you know, wanting to mix it up a little bit. And uh, what I didn't realize is that with me on my back upside down in the water, nobody could see me. Uh... And, and so there was a, a little bit of panic there. Cause they're like, well, who do we send in? Cause He's the rescue He's the guy, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I would pop up every now and then. And, and so anyway, but no, it, it was an incredible night. And I mean, there's so many stories to tell from that night alone. Um, the, just the bonding that we had, you know, that it, it, any obstacle presents when you, when you have a group of like-minded individuals. Right. And again, that was, 
one of my other things is um, this illusion that great men stand alone. You know, we don't. We're, we're created for community um, as human beings in general. You know what I mean? Sure, there might be somebody that stands out by themselves, but really for the majority, you know, um, we're just living amongst legends. And, and sometimes like-minded people get together and they do great things. And, and that's really what Olin did. He, he got the support that he needed and, and he just did the most beautiful thing um, that I've ever got to be a part of. And, and I'll touch on one quote that I, that I made in my blog post about it was, you know, the outpouring of love from Olin towards those families, it inspires me to be better and to do greater um, out of love, not selfishness, but true selflessness, because that's what I, that's what I witnessed that during that event. Um, and it was absolutely moving. Um, and there was nothing better than, than the absolute finish that there, again, I, there's a thousand stories in between, you know, when we had to take a tactical pause because we swam so fast that we were way ahead of schedule and we had a bunch of um, like finish line festivities with yeah. you know, crews and, and stuff like that. So uh, we actually had to take a tactical pause in a marina there for a bit. And again, you're talking about being uh, in the water for that long of a duration and the weather temps and everything. And we were freezing. And one of the comical ones was just trying to us start a fire in these super wet conditions. And like, I was pretty hypothermic. I'm not going to lie. Like I was probably not okay to be doing anything or have any kind of responsibility at that point. Um, but anyway, we were just kind of fiddle effing around trying to get this fire going and we got it going and, and just the camaraderie there and, you know, problem solving and all that good stuff. And then, you know, of course the finish line with that, that was single-handedly the greatest. I mean, we had fire EMS SWAT, everybody and their sister was out there cheering, screaming, rallying. I mean, you could hear, you could hear the crowd. We were like two, I think two miles away. And you could hear, just hear everybody, hear all the chaos. It was incredible. Yeah. And there's actually an image of me somewhere. I don't remember where it is, but I'm swimming. For some reason, Olin decided that uh, me and him would kind of lead lead the pack um, with the, the children. Two out of three of the children that we we're raising money for um, would jump into the water and swim us to shore. And for some reason, Olin was like, it's going to be me, you, and then all the rest of the guys behind us. And to this day, I, I don't understand why he made that decision. I, I mean, I was, you know, rescue swimmer or whatever, but, but to give me that, that seat or that position, it just, I was over the moon with it. And yeah. obviously I wasn't going to argue with him. And, but as we were coming in, we're getting really close. And I mean, just the emotion in the air was, I mean, you could cut it with a butter knife. It was, it was just palpable. And, uh, there's a picture of me taking a breath and you can just see a shit eating grin on my face. I, I couldn't control it. Um, it was just, just an amazing event. And, and just to, like I said, just to play a part of it, I, I really had no hand in it other than I, I got to swim a little bit and I got to watch these guys do it. And yeah. it seriously was one of the greatest things I've ever been a part of. And, um, Olin knows cause I rant and rave about it all the time, but, um, seriously one of the one of the greatest memories i have um especially in my civilian 
civilian endeavors. Yeah. So. But that's amazing that, you know, and, and this is a lesson for other people that you didn't know what the calling was. Like you just kind of felt it. you read it and you were like, I, I want to be a part of that. Right. And you went out and you did it and yeah. whether, whether they were going to accept you or not, and, and they were going to accept you, you know, there was no doubt there, but, but you didn't know. And you're, you're driving from all the way from the West over to Charlotte to go and, and put yourself, you know, and, and at that time you were helping out cause you were the, the rescue swimmer just in case somebody got hurt. But I yeah. could imagine you were sitting on the sidelines and you were like, I want to, I want to be in there. I want to, I want to do that. And, uh, but it was just a calling, you know, and you took the chance. Yeah. It was one of the best things that you ever did. And I could tell by your voice. Oh yeah. I'm super That's passionate awesome. about it. It was, it was great. It was great. So there's a thing. Um, I'm going to look it up. Um, I looked it up while we were, chatting and when you were talking about um your um the poetry so i did a podcast with a, a gentleman and um it was george cuddy and he has a thing and it's called the cuddy family foundation for veterans and what he's doing over in um, louisiana is he's raising money and he's trying to help um, veterans that are homeless and need a place to live. And he wants to create shelters and, and places for them to shower and take care of themselves. But one of the things that he does is they're putting uh, books together and it's um, veterans that are writing poetry. So he's putting these poetry books together and um, going to sell and put the proceeds together. And, and when you were talking about the poetry, I was like, I, I know a guy and I'll send you I'll send you his link and you can look into it and uh, see if that's something that, you know, something that you like. I just thought it was uh, it was kind of unique that uh, you're doing that, too. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to check it out. Um, but no, that was awesome. This was a this was a good chat, man, and uh, I appreciate you um, sitting down today and uh, coming on. And uh, I hope that uh, whatever you're struggling with right now, health wise, that uh, you get through it and move on and and get back to running and swimming and all that good stuff. Yeah, that's that's kind of the plan. We'll, we'll see where we get, but yeah. And, uh, and again, um, I like, I, I just like your attitude of, you know, reaching out for help and getting in community and everybody thinks that being the lone wolf is so awesome. I'm the lone wolf. The lone wolf is lonely, you know, very lonely. And, um, I like people, I like camaraderie. That was one of the best things I liked about the fire department because those were my people and you could go and laugh with them and cry with them and cuss them out. And the next day you were right there at the, the coffee table, you know, yucking it up again. Um, it's a good, it's a good place to be. Yeah. Especially in context uh, with PTSD, that that's a huge point that I hammer home is, you know, don't isolate because that, that is, that is a dangerous, dangerous um, situation for anybody struggling with PTSD. So, um, you know, there, there's things that we control can control and there's things that we can't, 
Um, and, and I strongly recommend, you know, focusing on the things that we can control and then just, you know, radically accepting what we can't. Um, and so that uncomfortable vulnerability in the water is, is a radical acceptance of, I can't change this, but it is what it is. And we press forward. Um, so yeah, definitely, um, in terms, in context of PTSD, don't isolate. We are created for community and nothing is worth doing alone. So, um, if you're out there and you, you need help, reach out because we, we all need help at some point. <laughs> 100%. Cool, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it. Cool, man. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Beyond Grit with your host, me, Robert Young. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. Tell somebody about it. You can find this podcast on all major podcast platforms. And be sure to tune in every Wednesday for another exciting success story of somebody going beyond grit. Until then, take care.